Let's get started tonight. We are looking at cultivating common ground, which will be an interesting one because it's interesting in the sense that sometimes when we become a Christian, we hear, and, and again, this goes, let, let me just rewind the tape, start this back again. How many of us, again, looking across the room, how many of us have been saved for a number of years? Okay, and that's the majority of us, okay? So rewinding the tape back to that is saying, what happens is, initially, we have a lot of connections with a lot of unsaved people back in the day. But if you're like me, you grew up in church, and you you don't have those connections. And if we are commanded to reach, and I hate to put it this way, but this is how sometimes we've said it, unfortunately, church, reach those people out there. Like, uh, you'll have that sign on the back of the church that says, you are now entering the mission field. That's a great thing. That's a, that's a good reminder. The question is, we step out into that mission field, but we don't, once we get into it, see it as a mission field. We just see it as people as busy as we are, and get out of my way because I'm busier than you, and why are you driving so slow, you know, sort of thing. So it is slow down, think it out, think it through, but also how we can um, reach into their lives in a way that God will open a door for the work. So let's pray toward that end, and we're rolling tonight. Father, we do thank you that you've given us this opportunity to be here again. I know that Wednesday is not the easiest day for most folks. It's a long day, a busy day with work, running to grab something to eat, and then running in here tonight. And yet I'm thankful for the effort that each has put in to be here and the opportunity that we have together to learn, to understand. And, and we're not going to remember everything, Father, but at least allow it to prompt us to be alert to what you desire to do, not just in our lives, but through our lives for the glory of Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. All right, so we're cultivating common ground, but I'm going to start with this. All right? There was a book written, well, as a matter of fact, I'll throw up some of this, and then we'll talk through it a bit. There was a book written back in 1986, a guy named John Miller, C. John Miller. And back in the early 80s, when I was fresh out of college, believe it or not, some of you are like born in the 1980s, I guess. Um, fresh out of college, yeah, I can tell the ones who just did the submerge. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, old geezer, all right? I, I, remember, uh, I remember the pastor that I was under at that time um, sent me and a couple of the staff guys down to Ohio to go to this church growth seminar. And I think it was an all-day gig. Don't remember a lot of it because it's been a while ago. And so there was just this huge flurry of books that came out of the late 70s, early 80s of church growth. And really what it morphed into and continues to morph into and has been a part of these mega church movements is not as much biblical directives but more marketing of the church. And that is finding out what people want and delivering it to them. That's why I've often said, too often church mentality is burger mentality. And that is the burger can't have it your way. You know, that's how churches have grown to mega churches. Find out what they want, make it what they want, they're going to come in droves. Well, yeah. If you cut sin out, you make sermons as short as possible, you give them a show that rivals any other rock show that they can go to in the Joe Louis Arena or the... the Palace at Auburn Hills or Ford Field, wherever they go, if and, and even books that say that, if you're going to have something, make sure that it's as good or better than what the world is putting on out there. And I'm like, yeah, there's a problem with that, because ours isn't electrical, ours isn't dynamic in that sense. The dynamic of the church is not the glitz and the glamour. The dynamic of the church is Christ lived through his people. And, and that can seem to the world quite boring, quite honestly. 
um, because that doesn't look all glitzy and glamour. Well, I say all that to say, when this guy wrote this book, he was writing during the time of the church growth movement, and his was similar, but it was different in the sense that his was not so pragmatically minded, and that is, it had more biblical directives. And here's why. He began, as he was in ministry, basically, I don't know that he had a mental breakdown, but just a breakdown of ministry, the demand of it, and saying he grew frustrated, left the ministry, but in leaving it, he was wrestling with what he was seeing in the church. And he was seeing in the church this issue right here. The church had become very ingrown. All right? You got an ingrown toenail? That's not a good thing. Well, ingrown church is even worse. All right? And here's what he did. He, he discovered what, saw, what he saw in his own life, not just in the church, because it's easy to sit back and say, yeah, the church isn't what it ought to be, but the leader is the, is the shepherd over that church that if his mentality doesn't change, the church won't change. So that's what he realized he had to do. Well, I, I take that down to us. When we're talking about cultivating a common ground with the people that we work with, that we live by, that we are given the responsibility to reach out to, it doesn't take very long for Community Bible Church to become an ingrown church. And I say this, we can easily be only a couple of steps away from becoming an ingrown church. We have our building. I mean, honestly, you have churches that have, they offer everything. They look like the inside of a mall. You know, they got they got aerobics classes. They got all kinds of stuff. And, and are those things inherently evil? Uh, I would not say they're inherently evil, but I can't say that we want to have 30 things that are the draw when really the one draw is Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't do things well either. Again, that's the, the, the hard balance we have to work at. But I do look at this, and it draws me to what we see at page 4.1. If you're in your book, top of 4.1, overviewing the issue. What he says in the book there is essentially with the title of this book, reminding me of it from way back in the day, reminding me of it when I read this first paragraph. Here's what they say in opening up this issue. Studies have shown that the longer most Christians have been believers, the fewer significant relationships they have with unbelievers. Now, let me pause for a second and say this. Notice what it said. The longer Christians have been believers, the fewer significant relationships they have with unbelievers. If we think through that, we could say that's both good and bad. Because there's a measure where, as a Christian, we ought to have significant relationships with believers. But, obviously, there's a good and bad to it. There's a healthy and an unhealthy aspect to that relationship. So that takes us down to the last sentence of that paragraph, and it says, Our duty is to see the relationships that are possible and take steps to cultivate them. I would say if you read through this paragraph, the four sentences or so that are in this paragraph, essentially what it does is drives home this issue right here, that we are always going to have to, as a church, fight the drift, the natural drift toward becoming an ingrown church. And that's because we are not cultivating common ground. And here's what it says at the end of that paragraph. Our duty is to see the relationships that are possible and take steps to cultivate them. So we can go, yeah, okay, here's the things we do see that are common that we need to pursue. But, and here's where the but's going to come in under these sound bites. All right, we got a couple of sound bites that are going to be the big conjunction junction right there at the front of the sentence getting in the way of everything else, all right? Now, here's where I want to throw an attention point. If you look at the, the bullet points underneath overviewing the issue, 
The first two say this, that we're going to explore Jesus and Paul's methods of cultivating common ground with unbelievers. And there's going to be some questions we're going to look at because those are important questions because it could seem like what Jesus did, if we tried to do that today, a lot of people are going to look down on us like, what in the world are you going to hang with those people? And, and are, you, are you legitimately able to do that like Paul did in order to reach more people? Because there are some things that will be illegitimate to do to reach more people. I would not say that when Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I tried to be all things to all people, there was parameters in that. All right? There wasn't just, hey, you know, whatever works, I'm going to go preach a sermon in a bar, you know, sort of thing. That's what we have to walk through. So here's where I see that, but then here's the next thing it says. We're not only exploring their methods for cultivating common ground with unbelievers, but examine the importance of developing quality relationships with unbelievers. Now, I I scribble all over my book. You may or may not. I scribble all over mine. It's a mess I get done. But I I circled the word quality relationships and then down and grasp the issue. You look down and grasp the issue. The first question says this. How many strong friendships do we currently have with unbelievers? So one of the bullet points was examine the importance of developing quality relationships with unbelievers. Now it says how many strong friendships do we currently have with unbelievers? When I think of quality relationships with unbelievers and strong friendships with unbelievers, does that create any tension for you at all in any way? Positive, negative, or you're just like... I'm not here to give an opinion tonight. I'm just here to sit and listen. <laughs> when you're talking about strong friendships and quality friendships with unbelievers, does that create any tension in your mind, your heart, yes. practically yes. speaking? What what does that create for you? What, what does that do for you in, in your mind? Phyllis? It makes me realize that God didn't leave me here instead of taking me home so that I could you know, float around happy all the time. Okay. Because it isn't a happy situation when you're strongly linked to someone who does not understand Jesus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What else? What other tensions? Because where they're wanting to take us, I mean, they're saying this in the bullet points in this issue, we will. And in the grasp of the issue, it's asking, and it's going to ask it again, when it comes to quality friendships, strong friendships, what other tensions does that create? Somebody said yes? If I I start to witness to someone who, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Kim, you had something else? The affections are going to be different. Okay. Affections in what way? A believer is going to have desires that a non believer doesn't have. Um, they're going to live their lives differently. Okay. Well, there's just your your whole heart and mind are wrapped up in in Christ, hopefully if you're a believer, and so everything you think, everything you do is colored by that by that belief system, and so you can't move or breathe or speak or, or act in any way that doesn't, that doesn't communicate that that's your priority in life, and to have a, a relationship with somebody that is that is not a believer, it creates a situation where you have to work at it. 
it isn't just you're not just comfortable because this is your best buddy and you believe all the things, same things and think all the same things. Yeah, and here's and somebody else have something over Ditto. here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and here's here's a part of where I'm hinting at. I'm hinting at I think they're adjectives, right? Strong friendship, quality relationships, all right? Because we don't naturally think that way. Uh, it's almost like I think it's I don't know if I heard probably been said more than once in a book. It's the it's the paralysis of analysis, and that is we think through it too much, and so we do nothing. And that is we start to think that because I can't have a strong friendship with an unbeliever or a quality friendship, because if I do, that's going to mess me up. I mean, we were told as a kid, you know, you get the wrong friends, and I mean, you can you can find plenty of verses in Proverbs and even First Corinthians 15 that's going to talk about uh, the the wrong kind of people will have the wrong kind of influence, and so we have then taken that and we've inbred that so much into ourselves and our psyche as a Christian that then this kind of statement creates a tension. And that is, we can and we ought to have strong friendships, quality friendships, rather than stale, sterile friendships in order to give them the truth. Because part of giving them the truth is showing what real genuine friendship looks like. Because most of their friendships, whether they admit it or not, are going to have friendships with strings attached. Because they will find friends that are fair-weather friends. We should not be that fair-weather friend. We should be that for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, whatever kind of friend we are, you know? And so when we're talking about this, it's bringing up a tension point, at least in my mind, for us, of something that we in the church have not done well because we have taken truths that are legitimate truths and important truths of the kind of friends we ought to have, but those things have reigned so supreme in our mind that they've turned us into that ingrown church uh, over time. Easily does that. But here's the opposite then. If that's true, then what kind of relationships and friendships do we have with believers? Are they to be quality and strong? Absolutely. But I think there's a difference in that is there is to be a deep and devoted relationship with believers. Um, there is, according to Colossians chapter, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, I think it is. It says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men. But then here's how Paul finishes that sentence, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So yeah, there is a devotion to each other in this room and in this church that rivals that of our unsafe friends. It does, and it ought to. But we don't let that become then our holy clique that allows us to avoid other people. And, and that's what we have to work at. So then, what they're saying in that first paragraph is drawing the agenda for us. We see the relationships that are possible, and we're going to take steps to cultivate them. All right? Now, down in the sound bites, I asked you if you happen to get a chance to do homework. Uh, looking at the sound bites, I just simply said, as you looked at number one and number four, uh, the first one and the fourth one, anything that grabbed your attention, any thoughts, any any way to sum up how those two statements hit you as you read them? I'll read them while you get a chance to think, grab your thoughts. First one, I'm so busy with work and my family that I don't have time for any meaningful relationships with unbelievers. Fourth one, with all the different ministries and programs I'm involved with at church, I just don't get the chance to get to know my neighbors. So, what's your immediate gut reaction, Phyllis? I'm too busy. Okay, we're too busy. All God's people say. Yes, Vince. A lot of times 
a lot of times we're one, one statement away from making good friendships. So like, uh, we'll, we'll piously say, Lord, what do you want me to say? And then we say, well, I can't say that. Yeah. 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 And, and we do. We, that's, the, that's the paralysis of analysis. We think it through and then we just bail. We, we don't take it forward. And, and that's where we're having to wrestle through it. And that is, busy is what jumps out of both of those, but also, it's not just busy. But what does the fourth one say? We're busy with what? The ingrown church. Yeah. Now, that here's where we don't walk out of this class going, Al just said, quit being busy at the church and doing your ministries and just go take care of your neighbors and share the gospel. Um, no, all right? I gotta say that because if I lose Val, I'm, I'm toast, man. She's like, yeah. and I got my I got my so and so crew. If I gotta sell that stuff, forget forget it. These guys are gonna be put on a superhero cage or something on March 21st and 22nd. All right. So it is the reality that you make me spit. Hey, can your sisters just get along back there? Um, you know, and that's where. I'm belaboring this at the front end, illustrating from John Miller's book that, again, we're a couple steps away. Even though we're seeing people come to community, people joining the church, if you notice, this is, this is not a critique, all right? So, again, to walk out of here going and saying, Hal's not happy with people that join the church. Most of the people, high percentage of the people that are joining the church are member transfer. They're not new believers. Now, are we like, you know what, we're kind of getting sick of all this member transfer, let's just cut it off and say, all right, you can't come in now unless you're an unbeliever. <laughs> we're not going to do that. But if, if we let that be the sum total of our church is growing and we just sit back and go, hey, the church is growing and we're just watching that trickle in, eventually we're going to have a backdoor revival because we're going to start to see we become all about ourselves rather than those out there. And I don't want to say those out there. People out there, like you and me, who were reached by someone else who cared enough to do it. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So we're trying to figure out how do we do that in a common ground. Because if you flip the page, uh, Tasha. we got time for Tasha. we got time for Tasha. Tasha trusted Christ, Jesus Christ, eight years ago. She was so excited that she quickly got involved in Bible studies at her church, started singing on the vocal team. Soon after, Tasha trusted in Christ. Her husband, Antonio, did as well. They joined a small group. Their children became heavily involved in a children's program at the Christian school that the church runs. Tasha and Antonio woke up early one Saturday morning and realized that they had no friends outside the church, no unbelieving friends whatsoever. In fact... They had no friend. In fact, they didn't even know their neighbors' names. How they asked each other, can they begin to tell about Jesus Christ? All right, let's get through some stuff when you aren't looking. All right, key questions. Let's go on down to this. If what we're saying so far and what we've been bouncing around about cultivating common ground, uh, I don't know if any of you made a stab at this. What the central issue or central question is before us? What are we wrestling with here? And you can say, well, we're wrestling with how to cultivate the common ground. <laughs> that's like, okay, that's like cheating, okay? All right? Here's, here's how I tried to put it, all right? I'm trying to think it through each time for myself and hopefully for us as individuals, all right? How can we do this? Answer. How can we best connect with unbelievers in a way that may open a door for sharing 
our faith. And that is, we're praying that God will open the door for the Word. But this lesson is reminding us that God intends for us to not live uh, sterile, distant lives, praying in our prayer closet, and assuming that God's just going to drag somebody to our door going, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? All right? You end up in prison, and you get a prison guard, and an earthquake happens. Maybe you'll get that opportunity, all right? But that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that happened with Paul in Acts 16. For most of us, most times, it's going to be cultivating this common ground, and then with God's hand in it, then taking that step to share our faith. Share why we respond the way we do, the way we think, the way we act, the way we don't do things or do do things. And really... Um, too often the church has become a place of people who don't do things. What unbelievers need to see is we are people who do things. And what we do isn't necessarily all that they are doing, but what we do is significantly important because it's relational and, and it's impacting other people's lives. So let's, let's look at the scriptures because here we see in two cases from the life of Jesus how he handled, which is going to raise some key questions for us. And then also how Paul said what he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Okay, pause for a second. Any questions so far? Y'all still with me? Y'all on the same page? We want to be page 4.2. All right, same page mentally, everything else. All right, we're all doing good. All right, don't drink the decaf coffee, drink the regular. All right, John chapter 1. These are lengthy, so for sake of time, I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to summarize them. John chapter 1, verses 40 to 51 is when Jesus uh, has been introduced by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In introducing him, John the Baptist had disciples. When the, he introduced Jesus as the Messiah, good thing happened. His disciples left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. All right, that's a great thing. That's the way it needs to be. Because then John, we find in John chapter 3, speaking about John the Baptist, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Absolutely. That's, that's the way evangelism is. But here's what happened. We know this because we, if you've been in a church for any length of time talking about evangelism, you talk about what Andrew did. Andrew is like the stellar uh, evangelistic illustration. Andrew brought his what? He brought his brother and introduced him to Jesus. All right? And that's what he does. The first thing it says in verse 41 there in that box, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. And, the, and verse 42 says, and he brought him to Jesus. All right? Look down in verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And obviously Nathanael's like, Hey, who is this guy from Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But same thing happens. Philip takes Nathanael and introduces him to Jesus. All right. So here's the question on page 4.3 that I threw at you um, if you had a chance to read through it and interact um, the question is it's the first of those two questions what can we learn from the examples of Andrew and Philip and what specific things do you notice about their styles of sharing their faith now there are some things that are basic they're going to jump off the page and there's some things we have to think through a little bit to see in what happens there because again there's also at least 2,000 years between their day and our day 
And so there's going to be a little bit of a bridge culturally, time-wise, historically, a lot of things. But there are some similar things. So when you look at how Philip and Andrew did in bringing their brother or their friend to Jesus, what is it that stands out for us from what they've done? Philip wasn't easily offended. Good. You know, he just, he was just like, all right, whatever, you know, but this is important to me. So he was able to let his unsafe friend know that, look, like, this is important to me, but you're also important to me. Yep. And so, like, you know, showing us that, talking to unsafe friends, like, letting them know that church's priority doesn't automatically always scare them off. It might, but most of the time they just appreciate some realness from you. Absolutely. And that's why third one, they weren't deterred by rejection. And Philip was that example of it. And your story from a couple weeks back, your friend down in Florida, uh, whether or not that was going through your mind right there was going through my mind as you're saying that. And I think about him a lot during this class. Yeah. Because we're still good friends. Exactly. But we'll get there soon. And, and, it, and it's one of those things where, you know, some, sometimes people like to, in the midst of a conversation, they like to throw out there, well, by the way, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Because they just want to see a squirm. They just want to see us react, and honestly, it kills them. It's like it's like it's like somebody doing something bad, and all they really want is the reaction. You know, they're not really looking for a, a discussion. They just want a reaction. If I just act like, hey, all right, let's talk about that. You know, no big deal. Uh, it's not like I expect I got to stand back because the lightning's going to hit you. Um, uh, this guy's name, Robert Ingersoll, tried that, and I'll tell you that story some other day. So good, thank you. What else? What else? What are the things we learn? One of them is we're not re- deterred by rejection. We don't let that stop us. That doesn't mean we're bullheaded and stubborn. It just means that we expect that. And we still relate in a friendly, loving, hey, it's all good. We can still talk about life. And somehow, as you're going to see in this book or in the article, if you get to read the really lengthy one, um, finding ways to connect in the midst of those conversations. What else from Andrew and Phil? One of the things that jumped out at me was just the immediateness of it. I, I like to analyze things and you know make a list of pros and cons. Yeah. But but it was just immediate. They right. just it, they didn't. Well, they might have taken some time to think about it, but not too much time. Right. Absolutely. And and that's where again, here's where we have to wrestle through. We wrestle through. We're going to take Colossians four and say, God, we're going to pray for an opportunity. And then we go and sit back and go, All right, God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. So there's a measure where the whole story is, yes, we pray for God to, to provide an opportunity, but we're not sitting back passively. We're stepping into that arena, wherever that arena is, and we're trying to introduce them to Jesus. Bill, you've been patiently waiting. Yeah, right well, there are a couple of things. Uh, all they did basically was invite them to meet Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus did the rest. They weren't discouraged when uh, nothing good comes from Nazareth or, or those kind of things. They just introduced it. That's what we're supposed to do. I think part of it, you you mentioned the 2,000 years difference from that time mm-hmm. until now. I think Nathaniel and uh, yeah, I think the name. they were familiar with the Messiah is coming. Mm-hmm. They were familiar with that part of it. So it was right. easy to say, he's here, come meet him. Right. You know, our friends today... Maybe they know a little bit about it. Maybe they don't know anything about the message, the word, the gospel. So, and that might be a little more resistance when you say, come hear the word. And 
and they both had just accepted Jesus, I think. Yep. So there was the excitement of come and meet, come and meet them. I would say 50 years ago. I can't all of a sudden say, wow, this just happened to me, you know. Although I should still be that excited. Right. Well, and see, you are bringing up one of the key tensions here. You're bringing up one of the key tensions. That's why I said there's 2,000 years removed. Because we could say, well, they introduced him to Jesus. In each case, they introduced him to Jesus. And you're like, well, that doesn't work for us because uh, Jesus isn't here. He's coming back, but at that point, it's probably a little too late for them. He does come back, all right? But what does that mean for us? What does it mean, practically speaking, to introduce somebody to Jesus? What's the first look at Jesus they get? Your life, the hope you have. Absolutely. How we live. We often think introducing them to Jesus is taking them through a track, taking them through a study, taking them through a book. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that was like suggestion number eight. Have books if you're going to have books and give it to people and invite sort of thing. That's all good. But introducing them to Jesus 2,000 years removed from Andrew and Philip is different in the sense that Jesus isn't here in body, in flesh to see him, but he is. Because if you recall, over and over in Paul's writings, we are called the body of Jesus Christ. So the best look, the first look, the most important look, the first way to introduce these people to Jesus, these unbelievers to Jesus, is for them to see us as a church relating well, loving, caring for one another, and doing the same thing in our neighborhood. I mean, that is how we are, like Philip and Andrew, taking them to Jesus. All right? That's that's essentially what we're talking about. So, yes, we can't introduce him because he's not here, but he is here because we are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the ambassador of Christ, representing the king. The question is, what do they think of what we say because of how we live? That becomes the tension point for them, all right? We're trying to connect with them, but how we act and how we respond seems so disconnected from real life sometimes, partly because we think differently, but also sometimes maybe because we don't think carefully in how we respond to people, all right? Anything else? Those are great observations. Anything else on how they how they carried out this ministry. It kind of goes back to the first thing that uh, of the thing that Val said about they did it right away. I just throw one more on there, and that is they started with people they already knew. Okay, and you're like, well, that's just basic. We already saw that. You know, it's got his brother, his friend. Yes, but so much of the history, modern day history of evangelism, has been cold calling with people we don't know. Now. There was a time, I think on the heels, I'm old enough to remember this, sad to say, you know, Kirby vacuum, because remember back in the 60s, our parents bought a Kirby vacuum, you know, Kirby vacuums and shoe salesmen and everything else. So that kind of just naturally transitioned into the church and guys that wrote books and everything else. And so that worked for a time because our culture was relational in our neighborhoods. We could do that. Um, I mean, you've heard said about how architecture even shows how our culture has changed. We have houses that don't that don't communicate with other houses. How do I say that? By having houses that have an attached garage, so you can literally get into your car, drive out of your house, drive to work, go back in your house, and never talk with your neighbor. I mean, some of the coolest neighborhoods in the world around here are in some of the cruddiest parts of Detroit because they have these huge, big front porches. 
you know, neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood, because back in the day, everybody had a porch, and you talk with neighbors, and that was your entertainment. You interacted. Now we even have architecture that's kind of created. We, we all have almost tried to build a moat with crocodiles without the moat and crocodiles, all right? Unfortunately. And even as Christians, you know, it's like, you know what? I'm sick of that music back there. This person act like this. So we put a big fence up. And, and again, do I, do I want that? Yeah, I do, because I like privacy like anybody else. But we have to even think through something like that. What are we saying? I don't want nothing to do with you because you're just messing with my Christian lifestyle. All right? Now, that doesn't mean you go home and you tear down your fence. I, I just realized I'm giving an illustration. And, I just got yeah, I know. As soon as, as soon as I got like three fourths into them, like they got a big white fence in their yeah. house. That was after a tornado. So Lord, we like our neighbors. Lord takes away the Lord gives, so it just happened to be a white big one. All right. But my whole point in saying that is going back to Andrew and and Philip, and that is they went to the people that they first knew, the people that God had put them with. Not that we don't ever do cold calling, but that is a long lost never to be repeated on a regular basis art. And I don't know that it ever was an art, but it was a way of doing it. And now you've got people who don't, and they're going to stick the stickers on, and you know, then you'll have people who will say, well, we're going to be bold for Christ, we're going to knock anyhow. Well, you know what? That ain't going to be bold anymore. That's just going to confirm for them that we're idiots in their mind, and we're bigger idiots now because we're too stubborn to not read that thing. Yes? Um, a situation that comes when when you lose a spouse, mm-hmm. I've, I've lost my spouse, and so he had five children uh, that we were ministering to, that we were witnessing to, and now, you know, there are those, my own family, uh, not this part of my family, who warned me not, you know, you don't need to be around them anymore because dad's gone and you know, they weren't very nice to you when he was around. So why, why? Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is because they still need Jesus. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you do invest yourself in people you know. And that is hard for us to do on a consistent basis, let's put it that way. Because our natural response is to pull back into our safe, comfortable zone Hence the ingrown church. Hence the ingrown family. Because it's like I... It's uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man, R. Kent Hughes. I think it's his chapter on love where he says something like, uh, something to the effect, if you really want to love the way you're supposed to love, like Jesus loved, be prepared to get hurt. And that is, if you're really going to love like Jesus loved through the Gospels as you see his life, it was hurt, rejection, misunderstanding, slander, everything else, but he's still loved you, you know? And the more we reach out, the more chance there is for that. That's why we then pull back. We don't want that. That's not comfortable. So Jesus, uh, these men introduced uh, their friends, their brother to Jesus, and they didn't get deterred. They realized, we have to realize now, introducing people to Jesus is not introducing them to an evangelistic system, introducing them to Christ through us, the body of Christ. Matthew 9. Let's run down to there. Matthew 9. Uh, Matthew, uh, kind of giving a biographical sketch, almost an autobiographical sketch, because he's writing this, and it's about him. All right? 
It's when Christ came to him. And here's what I would encourage you to circle or highlight in here is all three times when the word sinners comes up because Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And then verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house with many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with them. And then the Pharisees pick up on that and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus doesn't run from that. He runs with that because here's what he says in verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus didn't hide from that and go, you know, you're right, these are sinners. He's like, that's what I'm here for. And if, if you weren't so blind in your own self-righteousness, you'd see that you are one of them as well. But that was the problem. They were blind in their self-righteousness. But that sounds good when it's Jesus. Because Jesus is never going to sin, never going to make a bad choice, never going to be of the wrong crowd for the wrong reasons, all right? Um, people will then, in, in especially what I lived through in the 60s and 70s, and so many churches, and so many churches like this, a rules-based holiness in the church. And that is, if we don't do these things and we do do these things, then we are righteous people. Right? And it's the do's and don'ts. Uh, but here's, here's the reality. Jesus was known for, criticized for, repeatedly for being with the wrong crowd. And he, he bought it. He says, yeah, I'm with sinners, and I'm here for a reason. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the question that I, I asked you to interact with there. Go to page 4.4 at the top. Because this is instructive for us. We don't... It's hard for us to go, okay, 20 centuries later, different culture, different time, different person. Yeah, I may be the body of Christ. I may be the child of Christ, but I still sin. I make bad choices. Okay, the question is, notice that many tax collectors, sinners came and ate with him. Why do you think they were attracted to Jesus and enjoyed being with him? What should we learn from this? And I'll just start with that first question. Why do you think they were attracted to Jesus and enjoyed being with him? And that would be a tension point again, because that would mean, why would sinners be attracted to be with you and me? And take that to Jesus' level. Here's a perfect, sinless son of God. Why in the world were sinners attracted to him? Okay, Because that doesn't seem to compute. Because what Jesus said is, when I leave, the world's going to reject you like it rejected me. And the world's going to persecute you like it persecuted me. But why? And it's asking a great question. Why do you think that they were attracted to Jesus and enjoyed being with them? And we could say, well, whatever. Curiosity. Okay. Curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that we see throughout the Gospels. You know, they're looking for the show. They're looking for the free food. But these, these center groups, um, they were not the poorly fed down and out tax collectors they were the they were the upper crust because they were crooks all right but also some of these others were well-known sinners in the community um, these were people that would have been like i'm going down 75 today i'm like wow i didn't i've never seen you going off of outer drive the billboard that changes and it puts up this dude that's on the fbi most wanted i'm like well dude man you are all over our billboard you know here's somebody rudy something or another whatever his name was you know well, that would have been their society. People knew who these sinners were. It was it was a very close community, all right? But why? Why else? Jenny? Well, because of that, because everyone knew who they were, um, and, and look at, like, the Pharisees, they're going to condemn them outwardly. They're going to be 
be self-righteous and say, you know, I'm better than you. I'm following the law. I'm, I'm, you know, and you're not. You're, you're the tax collector. You're, you're the, you're the jerk that's stealing all of our money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And they're gonna, they're gonna just condemn them. Absolutely. And that's, you know, Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't like that. He wanted to give them grace and mercy. And, okay. You know, what's, what's more refreshing than that? You hit a key one. Jesus didn't look down on them. Okay? You said the word condemn them. Yeah, he knew they were sinners. They knew they were sinners. That was a given. It's like going to a prison ministry when we lived in Maryland, going to a medium security prison ministry. Well, number one, you get a captive crowd, right? There's nobody getting out the back door on this one, all right? And they got to put up with you, but at least they chose to put up with you in the Bible study, all right? But I don't have to sit down with these guys and go, you know what, let's start with Romans 3 and talk about that God says all have sinned. You know what, they're sitting there. They already know that. I can kind of skip a couple chapters. Um, I can do that. Although some of the those guys in prison are like, I didn't do it. Yeah, I, I didn't do it. And yeah, I, you're right. You're probably right. You didn't do it, all right? But just in case you did, you know, here's, here's a good answer. Okay? So... When, I, when I'm looking at this picture here and this question from Jesus, from their perspective of Jesus, one of them is Jesus didn't look down on them. And he had all the reason in the world to, because everybody else did. All right? What else did Jesus do that made them attracted and they wanted to be with him? What else did he do? Sierra? He offers hope that if they want to be better, to get out of that lifestyle, they have something more. Gave them hope. You know, they were, they knew that they were doing wrong but the self-righteous religious leaders were just condemning them outright and going, you ain't like us. Well, praise God, you know, because that gave them then a different hope and it wasn't in the religious guy's system, all right? What else? Great. Anything else? I think Jesus presented himself as a servant. I mean, when he came to serve, not to be served. Okay. When... when when you when you when you decide to sacrifice your wants and needs for the wants and needs of others, I think people recognize that. Good, and and I put really simple answers, and you guys are developing them much better. I said Jesus took time for them. You know, if if you are the boss, you don't take time for the servant. The servant takes all the time for you. Jesus was showing, even though he was, and I hate to put it this way, the boss. He's a lord. He was taking time for them. He was giving people the time of day that most people wouldn't give them anything. And so, yeah, he didn't look down on them. He took time for them. And and here's why I, I, I circled that word sinners, sinners, sinners. He was honest with them. All right? He was honest with them, but it didn't end with you're sinners, so I'm walking away from you. It's your sinners, but. And, and that's where the hope comes out that we've already hit here tonight. And if I can throw one more thing on, and then we're going to have to move on for sake of time. And that is, one of the things that Jesus didn't do was he didn't put conditions on the relationship. Okay? That's what the religious people were doing. They put conditions, as long as you follow our rules and regulations, we're good with you. Jesus had all the reason in the world, because he's God, to say, you know what? I want nothing to do with you. But in his love and his grace, he came... And just like he's done with us, to those folks, he didn't put conditions. So that, again, that's informing us and how we interact with other people. We might see things in them that we don't like, that we question, and that sort of thing. But like Jesus, we take time for them. We don't look down on them. I can remember times 
early on when Carol and I were married and she went on some visits with me and one thing she noticed because she would see how I how I respond maybe you're talking with somebody they just unload on something really bad and she I remember her telling me afterwards she goes I was really surprised surprised when I watched your face she didn't react and I'm like but I wouldn't want to react you know and again it wasn't like she was going (gasps) sort of thing you know deal but it was just she caught on that and I'm like yeah because if I'm talking with a sinner, they're doing what a sinner does consistently. They sin. It's what it is. I'm not going to say it's all good because it's not all good. But Jesus didn't look down on them. He didn't put conditions because he already knew they were sinners, and sinners do what sinners do. What I want to offer is hope, and I want to take time to let them see that first in my life and how I might care for them. All right. Wow, I have not moved this up. Let's go to the last scripture, 1 Corinthians 9. Great scripture to read. Uh, matter of fact, years ago, uh, verse 19 stuck with me, and I just purposed to memorize it, but it's in a different version here. It says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And here's where it's going to go really, really, really against our 21st century American culture. And that is, it ain't all about me. It means putting aside my rights. I mean, here's the principle I would pull out of these verses for sake of time. And that is that gospel ministry, if we're going to do it the way God wants it to be done, it's going to force us to make choices to limit our rights and our freedoms. It isn't about what I want that makes me happy. It's about I may have to give up something that is a legitimate thing to have. It was legitimate for Paul to be provided for financially by the churches to do his ministry. But he said, I'm not going to do that, and here's why. There were so many fake guys going out there spreading stuff and getting paid for it. He chose not to be supported so it wouldn't affect the ministry. So he had to do tents, and he had to have people give generous gifts along the way, but he didn't get supported, which he said should have been done. All right. Now, go to questions three and four, and honestly, we may have to just skip over these, so I'm just going to... Let's... Let's skip over that. I just got to say simply that when it it comes to this, that text, uh, because we don't have time to develop it tonight, at the heart of it, it's making choices to reach out to people in a way that may go against what I want in a given moment. Um, Taking time. Time is the precious commodity that we all crave and seem to have so little of. And when we do have time left, what do we call it? It rhymes with free time. Me time, all right? Free time has been wonderfully described now as me time. And think about how we say that, you know? And I admit, have I said it? Crying out loud? Yeah. You know, I said to my wife, I'm, I'm watching Red Wings game. It's me time, you know? It's stupid, you know? But free time has morphed into me time, and that's really just calling it what it is. You know, let's call a spade a spade. It is saying it's all about me. And even that, Paul is saying, I put aside me so that God will give me this opportunity. Easier said than done. Requiring the grace of God, the conviction of God, and the moments that God gives us to choose that. All right? So let's jump to consult other sources. And if you read the article, you were ready to shoot me saying, why didn't he pick the first one? Because the first one, beyond the holy huddle, was all of three pages. And really, it, it did in similar way what the longer article did, and that is... That first article was helpful because it shows that a guy who had slipped into an ingrown church mentality, what he did to fight out of it. You know, so that's that's what the good thing was in that first shorter article. 
He even gave some suggestions that really got developed in the bigger article. So the bigger article by Joe Aldrich is called Your Non-Believing Neighbor, and it's from a book that was, again, in the 1980s, one of those... I don't think we had that book, but maybe we do. It's been around for a long time. Um, but it's called Lifestyle Evangelism. All right, So that became a, a big book. It was a debated book. It was debated at the same time where decision-making... It's not decision-making in the will of God. There it is. Gary Friesen. That book, Decision-Making in the Will of God, in the book back there, and Lifestyle Evangelism by Joe Aldrich. Both of those came out within a year of each other, a year or two of each other, and were a big part of the debates in churches, all right, about decision-making, how do we do it, and Lifestyle Evangelism because we were still stuck in a 60s and 70s mindset of how to do it. And it was saying be more relational, and that kind of just went awkward for a while, all right? But I think he hit some key things. So because of the fact that this has a lot of sections, matter of fact, he gives you 10 ideas. Let me at least say this as we walk through this. Um, it came out in the early days of the church growth movement, um, but it, it, when it comes to the things that he's saying, that it's not as pragmatically oriented, but one of the things you'll notice if you read the article, it's dated, all right? So there's illustrations of what to do, and there are things we would never do in 2015 that were done in the 1980s. So you have to just kind of take the bad with the good. I don't mean bad, we've got to update it in our mind. Now, Here's what I'd like us to do is look on page 4.9, if you're there. In the introduction, that first paragraph, four line, five lines down, it's, he says, following are some keys to developing redemptive relationships. That phrase, developing redemptive relationships, as far as I can tell, this is where that phrase got coined was by Joe Aldrich because we've heard that in churches. We've got to develop redemptive relationships and we preach on it, we teach on it, we have that, that buzzword, that buzz phrase, and that was in his book, and I think he brings that out a number of times. The question is how to do that, and that's where these ten points that he gives us are laying it out. And as he says, these aren't necessarily in logical or chronological order, like you do the first five, if it goes well, keep cranking with the next six. It's not saying that. Here are some things that have greater or lesser value than the others. Now, because of time, I knew I couldn't go through all ten, and I don't think that all ten have as much value as some over the others. I'll say the first one, if you read it, the first one was a little, say a little different, um, in the sense that he's saying, in order for you to be effective in reaching your neighbors, you have to literally visualize the Spirit of God hovering over your neighborhood. Uh, I'm not sure where that came from back in his day, but I don't think I need to do that. I just know that. And I don't know that that's ever going to motivate me, like, you know, like seeing something floating. I don't even know why that came out. So I, I don't understand that. Uh, maybe there was part of the movement at that time, visualize the Spirit of God hovering over your neighborhood. But in the midst of that paragraph, he said some other good things. That was just a little strange one. The second one, uh, number two, at the bottom of 4.9, and I went through to help you help yourself. I went through and put one because he says, I'm going to give you a 10. So every one of these... Uh, titles are unnumbered. So the number two is make initial acquaintance. So flip the page for that, number two. And again, this one's a little, here, here's, I wanted to kind of pick apart number one and two for just a second and then go to the positives, all right? Number one was a little strange. Number two was, yes, we need to make an initial acquaintance. And he talked about the key, the second key is and here's where I had the tension. He says, those people, sorry, you're like assuming you know where I'm 
talking. At the top of page 4.10, left column, first paragraph, first full paragraph, he says, this then is the second key. Those people who respond to you socially are the schooling fish. So talking about fishing, talking about schooling fish, how do you find out if they are? All right, now, here's, here's where I have a little tension in my heart as I'm reading through this article. He says, he gives this, and he goes on to say in, at the beginning of the next paragraph, he, is saying, he says, I have seen this principle affirmed over and over again. So he talks about a pattern, now he turns it into a principle. Eh, I'm not real comfortable with that because that's taking something that is an experience but it's not a normative, principled experience. That is, and maybe it does work, maybe it doesn't. Just because somebody responds, and the reason I say that is because we buy into that. We'll think, the only people I can reach is the people that I connect with socially. That's essentially what he just said. What if I have people that I don't connect with socially? What if God brings those people to my life and I think, all right, I'm not connecting socially, so therefore I shouldn't be reaching them because they're not part of my schooling fish. That was my tension. Jenny? But at the same time... Um I kind of see where he's going. Where if somebody doesn't like you, mm-hmm. you're you're not going to reach them. If somebody doesn't understand you, like I'm kind of an odd duck. It takes a little while to kind of get to know me and understand. A couple years, couple years. <laughs> you know. So for somebody that's like, wow, she's a little weird. You know. Guess what? They're not going to get the gospel from me. They're not going to. They're not going. It's not going to absorb into them. So I do see kind of his point that those people that you click with that that understand you, they're going to value what you say more. So I mean, in that respect, I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, it makes sense. And just so you know, I agree with you. My only tension in it was the one word, principle, and that is, and what he is saying is, he almost turned an experience which is a normative I would say a a right observation and says that becomes the principle. When I say that becomes the principle, here can be the potential for thinking that way. I then avoid anybody that I don't naturally connect up with. What if initially I don't connect at all and yet somebody because they see something in me that makes them attractive to me even though I feel like they're kind of weird there's something in me or in you that attracts me to them. If I have this principle in my mind, I'm going to avoid it like the plague. Well, that didn't go well. And so my point is, absolutely, agree with you. And you get you get another throwback. You look like you're getting ready to go, yes, but. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, we only have five yeah, minutes. Yeah, I'm sorry. You can say it in ten well, seconds. No, but, but, I, but I, think, I don't think he's saying close the door. You know? mm-hmm. I, think he's, I don't think that he's saying, oh, well, if you didn't have a good experience. I think he's saying that... I think he's saying just that these people are the school, the schooling fish, and you said yourself, um, if they had, if they're still attracted to you and want to, you know, pursue a friendship with you, I, I think that makes them a schooling fish. Right, and I, again, we're not in disagreement at all. I would simply say, be aware, beware, not be aware, beware of thinking that the only people I can reach are the people that I can connect with, because if that's where we take what he said then the danger can be we avoid people that we might not connect with initially. We might think, oh, well, that just wasn't one of those schooling fish, and so we're not swimming in the same thing, so it may be, was it Dorsey or what? Finding Nemo, the weird one? Dory. Dory, 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 Dory. Dory. <laughs> yeah, you can tell she my kids are a little bit older. coming out next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dorsey, Dory. All right. So let's go to the positives, all right? And I, again, there's many positives in this in this article. Three, four, five, and seven, all right? 
and crying out loud, this thing's going to go off and that's going to go and we're going to be done. Just, no, 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 it's, it's all good. Discussion is what I like to keep us moving and thinking. That's what I, if anything, I want us to think and act. If we just sit and soak, we're done. Um, think and act is really what we're trying to do. And if we think it through, we tend to act more. Establish a growing relationship. And here's some things under that one. 4.10, bottom right column. Something I've already said. Get to know their names. Be sure you pronounce them correctly. And they said, smile. Don't be that grumpy neighbor that walks out. I mean, you may be grumpy as all get out, but tell yourself, i got to walk out and act like I'm just loving the morning. And you're not a morning person. All right? Now, that doesn't mean put on a pasty smile, but... You know what, if, if we look like the grumpy people coming and going, what, you know, do they really want to get to know us? Um, so it is. It's and, and third thing he threw on there was be a good listener. And we've talked about that. Don't just listen, and we can do this. Listen to think, how can I get it to this? Let God get it to that. You know, we can sometimes artificially jam it to that, and the conversation just goes bad, all right? That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. But here's then on page 4.11, he gives some categories that if we're if we're that person that doesn't know how, and I, I'll just confess this because I've told my wife this. You know how many times? This is a stupid, stupid confession. I got a lot of stupid confessions. How many times? You know, dating a girl or something in high school or in college. I literally wrote down things going. All right, if this thing goes dry on me, what are we going to talk about? You know, because uh-huh. I needed to be ready. Because I was not that kind of person. Sorry. And and so and I had. I mean, even a phone call. I have these phone thing. I think about it. Phone like. All right. This thing's getting really quiet, and I'm not waiting for like you know another 15 seconds because I think it's going to get really awkward. What am I going to talk about now? You know, well, same thing in this. We can feel the same way with somebody we don't know that well. All right, don't look at me like you've never done that. Yeah, well, and see, the reality is that's what we do with unbelievers because we feel like, how do we get that common ground? How do we build that relationship? How do we connect with that person? All right, and that's what he's talking about, knowing some things. And here's where. Extending an invitation to your home, page 4.11 is the fourth one. Here's a couple things that he brought up, and we're going to have to end with this, unfortunately, for <clears throat> time. A couple things he brought up was invite them to your home, but have a definite reason for inviting them, and don't put on a big fancy meal. Because if they're a neighbor, they're going to think like most people, oh, we got to have them back, and we got to do something as big as they did. You know? Most neighbors are going to dig having something cooked on the grill that was eaten over whatever. You know, it's not a big meal. It doesn't have to be that way. But also, here's another very practical thing he said, is if you don't feel comfortable doing that, but you want to do that, invite somebody from your church that you know that you're good friends with that can help keep the conversation going and can help make it more comfortable for you. Maybe you want to reach out with your neighbors and you're like, you know, I'm not comfortable with that, but I want to do that. Get somebody else from, from the church to join in on it. That doesn't mean barrage them so they feel like, oh, this is a setup. You know, you're gonna just, you know, it's a takedown with the church people. You know, and we don't want to do that either. So keep the numbers small. All right, a lot of stuff to discuss. I wanted to get to a key question. Maybe I'll throw it back to us next week when we start up. Um, but we got to wrap it up tonight because everybody else is sneaking out the doors. Thank you for your interaction. Uh, thank you for thinking through these things with me. I hope that. It will continue to make us be alert to, awake to opportunities God gives us and with his grace and help seizing them. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the incredible love that you have shown to us, that you still show to us exactly what Jesus did and what attracted others to him as well.
what you still do to us and with us and should attract others to you as well. You have given us so much time, so patient, so gracious. You have every reason to judge us, squash us, destroy us. But yet, because of Christ, you don't. And we thank you for that. And yet, help us to take what we know, not be content with just knowledge, but take it and live it so that we are introducing people to Christ and then communicate it as you give opportunities. And we seek to cultivate those opportunities for your glory. In Christ's name.